Jesus said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Rod Anderson. Uh, Tonight, our presentation, as is advertised, is called The 1,000 Years of Desolation. And what we're going to be doing tonight is we're going to be putting a lot of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle in place, and you're going to see a flow and consistency in the Bible that you've never been aware of before, and you are going to be absolutely amazed. Now, remember, as we've said in the past, the truth has nothing to fear from investigation. So what we're doing is we're going to continue our study of the Bible and allowing the Bible to interpret itself. That's that's the safest course if we want to have an accurate understanding about any subject in the Bible, and particularly with this one that we're looking at tonight, the 1,000 years, which is found in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 20. Now, last week, you will remember when we did the study on death that uh, death is just a dreamless sleep. In fact, we discovered that the word cemetery just means sleeping place. That's all it means. Nothing, nothing uh, else other than sleeping place. And we saw that when a person dies, they just go into the grave and they remain there in a dreamless sleep until the end of this world as we know it. And we know that the end of this world comes with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, in the next two sex- sessions, now you say, what? The next two sessions, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be tackling this huge subject of the 1,000 years uh, because we need to divide it in two, two parts because of the bulk of the material that the Bible deals with on this subject alone. And what I said a little earlier holds true right now that there's going to be a flow and consistency. You're going to see the way the Bible doctrines connect with one another. And we don't have to do any, any sort of clever mental gymnastics to make Bible verses or Bible doctrines fit into each other because the Bible is inspired by God. Amen. So what we're going to do now is we're going to answer a few questions. For example, what happens to the righteous after the second coming of Jesus Christ? We know that they go to heaven, but what happens in heaven? What about this earth? What's the condition of this earth during the 1000 years? What about the the lost? What about the wicked? What about those people who've turned their backs on God, edited God out of their lives, intentionally said they've wanted nothing to do with God? What about those people? Well, what does the Bible say in relation to the um, consequences of, of such a life as that? Well, we're going to see tonight as well. And then what about the architect, the one who's brought all this misery upon the world? The Bible calls him Satan. The Bible calls him the devil, uh, Lucifer, um, the apostate, the serpent. All this sort of language is used to describe him, the dragon. And as we allow the Bible to interpret itself Tonight, we're going to have all of those questions and more answered. Now, before I go on, now, I've already thanked Joel for his beautiful prayer, but I really feel the need to pray on this subject because it's so vitally important for each one of us, particularly at the stage where we are with these presentations. So I'm just going to ask the Lord for another blessing upon us now. Father in heaven, we would just ask that you be with each one of us. Help us to have open minds and open hearts as we study the scripture. We just ask that everything would uh, be clear and that people would clearly see the beauty of your word and that you would be uplifted in the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, 
We're going to start with our first Bible text. It's found in the Gospel of John. And on the screen now we have John chapter 5, verse 28. We're looking at verse 29 as well. It will say, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. These are the words of Jesus in which all who are in, in the graves will hear his voice. Now, question, how many people in the graves will hear Christ's voice? Well, the Bible says that everyone in the graves will hear his voice. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 29. And come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, Jesus speaks of two resurrections. He speaks about the resurrection of life and he also talks about the resurrection of condemnation or the resurrection of damnation, depending on what translation we're reading from. And we're going to see tonight that those two resurrections are actually separated by 1,000 years. Now, don't bridle. Don't uh, think, oh, what's this all about? We're going to allow the Bible to interpret itself as I've said. Now, the resurrection of life commences the 1,000 years. We're going to see that the resurrection of condemnation closes the 1,000 years. Remember what Jesus said. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 1, he says, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 2, he says in John 14, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus has promised that the resurrection of life commences at the time of his second coming when the righteous are gathered up and they are taken back to those mansions in the Father's house. And the Bible identifies that place as the New Jerusalem. Now, the Apostle Paul also speaks about the resurrection of life. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ. What's, what's that saying there? It says the dead in who? The dead in Christ shall rise first. So this is the resurrection of life. So the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, we've read that when Jesus Christ comes back the second time, all the righteous are going to be resurrected. They're going to be gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. The righteous living are lifted up in the clouds to meet Jesus Christ in the air. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, uh, Jesus says these words. In, he says, and he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So the Apostle Paul says that the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. And Jesus Christ himself says when he returns, it's actually the angels which go forth and gather the righteous up to meet the Lord in the air. Now, remember, this is the event that commences the 1000 years. This is the resurrection of life. But what happens to those people who have decided they don't want anything to do with God? 
They don't want anything to do with church. They don't want anything to do with religion. These people have turned their backs on God. They've chosen to live their life as though a God or God did not exist. So what happens to these people? Well, we're going to turn now to 2 Thessalonians and we're reading from chapter 1 and verse 7 to 9 on the screen now. Now, it says this, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Let's pause for a moment. What is this describing here? When it talks about Jesus coming from heaven with his mighty angels, what's that, what event is that referring to? Right, so this is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then it says, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on who? What does it say there? Taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's talking about two groups of people here and the first group it's saying these people who do not uh, know God and the second group those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to talk about those two groups in a moment but when Jesus comes it says flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So let's talk about those two groups now. The Bible says that when Jesus Christ comes, the righteous are all gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. But the wicked, those who've turned their backs on God, choose, chosen to live lives as though God did not really exist, these people are punished. Now they're divided into two camps, in fact. You have those who do not know God and those who do not, what was the language there? Who do not obey, that's the key word, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, let me explain it this way. The people who do not know God, this is referring to people from, from any area in the world that you care to mention, any time in the world or time in earth's history, any generation that you would care to mention who have intentionally said that God doesn't exist. Now, it doesn't matter if they're from, uh, uh, from the, the, the uh, uh, South Pacific. It doesn't matter if they're from Alaska. It doesn't matter if they're from Turkestan. It doesn't matter if wherever they're from. The point is that God has placed in the, inside of each man and each woman who has ever existed an awareness that he in fact is real and he is to be worshipped. Now we know as we visit different cultures and we go back over history that there's always been this tendency, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter what nation, it doesn't matter what tribe, that those people have worshipped something or someone because God has placed this desire within the heart, within the breast of every man and woman who's ever walked this earth. Now, for those people, the Holy Spirit guides and checks their behavior just as he does ours. And it doesn't matter what period of time we're talking about. The Holy Spirit impressed people in those days, in past generations, what is right and what is wrong. Did they have access to the Bible? No, they didn't. Did they know who Jesus Christ was? 
No, they didn't. Had they heard the name of Jesus Christ? No, they didn't. But the point is that they had an awareness of God, that there were certain principles, universal principles that had to be adhered to, and they lived up to the promptings of the Holy Spirit within them, even though they knew not who was moving upon their hearts. Does that make sense? So you have these people, and they may not have heard the name of Christ prior to the time of Christ, and there will be people who have walked according to the light that they have they've lived good noble upright lives whatever community they found themselves in and as a result of their lives and the light that they were given or the restricted light that they'd been given or the opportunities that they had God allows them into the kingdom make sense it's fair isn't it it's fair when we also think about those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is different now because these are people who are well acquainted. They've had opportunities to know about Jesus Christ. They've had opportunities to be able to study the Bible. They've lived in places where the Bible was available or there's been opportunities to learn about Jesus Christ and they've turned their backs on that or they've decided to accept Jesus Christ but only to walk in a partial Light because there are certain things in the Christian faith that they did not want to do and it impacted their own preconceived ideas of how God should be worshipped and those people chose not to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's those two groups there. So you have one group who we would not identify as Christians as all and at all and you'd have a second group who we would say yes they are clearly people who had, had opportunity to know of Christianity or people who walked in uh, in the in the hallowed halls of Christianity if you like but they refused to accept all the the counsel that God gave them and in fact the Bible says here who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ so obviously they have been disobedient they've known what God wants them to do but they have chosen to be disobedient now in fact when we go to the Old Testament in the Old Testament book of Isaiah we see there the destruction of the wicked also at the time of Christ's second coming and it says this in Isaiah chapter 11 verse 4 but with righteousness he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So the Bible says here that God judges by righteousness and with equity. And then it says he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his, mouth, uh, breath of his lips he shall do what? It says he shall destroy or slay the wicked. Now, let's make no mistakes about it. The Bible's very clear. In fact, we could go to many passages in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, which talks about the reward of the righteous and the punishment of the lost. Uh, and it's repeated over and over again. But when Jesus Christ comes back, the second, at the second coming, the righteous who are alive are gathered to meet the Lord in the air, and the wicked who are alive... Are, all, are destroyed at that, that point in time. So that's the last generation on planet Earth. But what happens to those people who are in the graves? They're not resurrected at the resurrection of life. What happens to them? Has God forgotten them? Has he overlooked them? What happens to those people? Well, let's find out now. We're going to continue our study. We're going now to Revelation Revelation chapter 20, and we read this. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, 
and judgment was committed to them. Let's pause for a moment. We are reading here that there are thrones and people have been sat on the thrones and judgment has been committed to them. So who are these people? These people have a role in the judgment or in a judgment. And then it says, then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. Let's pause again. What's a soul in the Bible? That's right. We've been exposed to this enough now to know that a soul is just referring to a person. You're a soul. I'm a soul. We're all souls here. Isn't that right? We're all souls. So uh, it says, then I saw people all souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. So these people have lost their life because of their witness to Jesus Christ and for the word of God. What's the word of God? Well, it's the Bible who has not, who had not worshipped the beast and his image. Don't worry about the beast and his image at this point in time. We will be dealing with that. And then it says, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? For a thousand years. Well when we look at this passage here we have to admit that who it's referring to here it's referring to the righteous. Now you may have heard Christians say and Christian teachers speak about the 1,000 years as a time of um, peace as a time of prosperity on earth when Jesus comes and he rules on earth and there'll be a thousand years of peace. How many people have heard that? Now I can see, I can, I can see hands going up here and there. Uh, I can't see what's on the other side of the lights there, but I'm presuming it's going to be the same. So you've heard that when Jesus comes back, the righteous and uh, uh, live with Christ on the earth. Well, it's wrong. It's not in the Bible. You can't support that teaching in the Bible at all. In fact, the Bible teaches something entirely different. Now, the word millennium, it actually comes, uh, the word thousand years, it actually comes from two words, milli meaning thousand and anium milli meaning years. But the word millennium is actually not in the Bible at all. You can't find it in the Bible. Now, this verse that we've looked at here, it talks about a group of people. It says that they have, God sets up thrones, they sit upon them, they're involved in a judgment, they have not received the mark of the beast, they've died for their testimony to Jesus Christ. So these people here, these are men and women who have put their life on the line for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? So are they good people or are they bad people? Okay, so it's referring to the righteous here. Now, the Bible says that these people will live and reign with Christ for how long? Right, for 1,000 years. But notice what we read now in Revelation 20 verse 5. It says, but the rest of the dead, now who are the rest of the dead? Well, they're the people still in the graves. They're the people who didn't come forth at the time of the resurrection. It says here, but, uh, the resurrection of life, the wicked were destroyed, but these are the lost in the graves. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until when? Well, until the thousand years for finish, were finished. You see, the Bible says, if we look at the screen, the rest of the dead did not live again 
until the thousand years were finished. So we have the resurrection of life, which commences the thousand years at the time of Christ's second coming. And then we have the resurrection of condemnation at the end of the thousand years. In John chapter 5, verse 28 and 29, it says that everyone who is in the grave shall hear whose voice? Will hear his voice. So whether it's at the start of the resurrection, sorry, it's the start of the thousand years, or whether it's at the end of the thousand years, the Bible says that the... Everyone who are in the graves, the dead, they will hear the voice of of Jesus Christ and will come forth. Okay, now, so we know that this is referring to the wicked. We know that it's referring to those people who who have died before the return of Jesus Christ, but they lived a life in rebellion. We have to understand when it comes to the destruction of the wicked at the time of Christ's second coming, why they aren't a part of this this, um, resurrection of condemnation. Let me explain that to you. The final generation on planet Earth, they are exposed to a multitude of different things. The Bible tells us that there'll be signs and wonders in the last days. The book of Joel and the book of uh, Revelation chapter 18 says that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon all flesh. Every man, woman and child will be convicted of what is right and what is wrong. The Bible says that the gospel goes to the whole world and then the end shall come. But prior to the end coming, the Bible tells us that in Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 20, uh, chapter 8 and chapter 9, there are judgments that come in the form of trumpet judgments, which are supernatural in origin, but which alert men and women that the end is coming. And then finally, and they're the penultimate, but finally, at the t- at just prior to the second coming of Christ, you have the seven last plagues which are poured out upon the earth. And it's, it's this last generation that experience all these things, all the wonders, all the miracles that they behold, things which science can't explain, things which baff- baffle logic. These people witness all these things, but still they resist. You say, how is that possible, Rod? How is that possible? Well, we have to ask how it's possible that the priests in the time of Jesus uh, were able to ignore the miracles that Jesus did as sure evidence that he was the Messiah. When he rose Lazarus from the dead, the son of the widow of Nain was raised from the dead. Uh, Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. The stilling of the waters, the miracles that Jesus kept. The apostle John says in the end of his gospel, uh, he says that if all the miracles that Jesus performed were included in one book, there wouldn't be enough room on the earth to hold them all. So uh, how is it that in the face of incredible evidence and being prompted by the Holy Spirit that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, you still have people at the time of Jesus Christ yelling out, crucify him, crucify him. How's that possible? It's a reflection of the um, uh, destructive influence of sin and rebellion upon the human heart and just how far men and women are prepared to go in rebellion. The same applies in the last days, in the last generation. Men and women will have an incredible amount of life by which they'll be able to make a clear decision. The lines of demarcation between truth and error will be apparent to every person and those who walk in the light will receive the resurrection, the reward of the resurrection of life, the immortality, sorry, the reward at Christ's second coming. But those who turn their back on the appeals of God, on the appeals of God's people, the Bible says that they will be destroyed. 
That's what the Bible says. And in fact, we read this now in Jeremiah 25, verse 33, it says this. And at that day, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth, even to the other end of the earth. The Bible says they shall not be lamented. They shall not be gathered or buried. They shall become refuse on the ground. Here we read that the wicked are destroyed at Christ's second coming. The Bible says that they're refuse on the ground. They're not lamented. They're not gathered. They're not buried. Why is that? Why aren't they gathered? Why aren't all these dead bodies buried, got out of soul? Why is that? Well, because there's no one there. Remember, the righteous are in heaven. The wicked who are alive are all destroyed. And the wicked who were, who were dead prior to, the resurrect, prior to the time of Christ's second coming, they still remain in their tombs, if you like, after the time of Christ's second coming. So during the thousand years, after the second coming of Christ, there's no one to lament. There's no one there at all. And one thing's for sure, there's not going to be a second chance at the time of Christ's second coming at all. Look at this. John chapter 5 verse 29 says, And those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? To the resurrection of condemnation. So those people who are in the graves... Those people who've turned their backs on God, they're not going to get a second opportunity. They're not going to get a second chance because the Bible calls it uh, those people at the end of the thousand years, they, are, they go up in the resurrection of condemnation. All right, let's continue on now. In Revelation chapter 20, we see that God's people have a part in a judgment during the thousand years. Now we've read the text, but let's read it again for clarity. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus Christ. Now, let's go back. Let's just go back. So here we have the thrones and judgment is committed to these people. We know that this is referring to the righteous. Isn't that the case? We know it's referring to the righteous. It says their witness for Jesus Christ and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? Well, the Bible says there for a thousand years. Now, then it says in verse 20, uh, verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. See, the Bible is just reiterating the point that the righteous who are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air, they live and reign with Christ in heaven for a thousand years. Now, as I said, we looked at those verses earlier. The Bible says that the righteous participate in a judgment. But we have to ask, what sort of a judgment are they participating in? And in what way 
could they possibly judge? After all, at the second coming of Christ, the Bible says that the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. The Bible says that the wicked are destroyed. So at the time of Christ's second coming, there's already been a judgment prior to the second coming of Christ, a heavenly judgment, in fact, uh, which precedes the second coming of Christ to determine who's going to be lost and who's going to be, be saved. And in fact, if we go to Matthew chapter 25, we're going to see that that is certainly the case. In Matthew 25, uh, verses 31 to 34, it says this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, who's the Son of Man? It's Jesus, Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, what, what, what is this referring to here? This is the second coming again. Thank you. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on his what? On his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The Bible's clear, isn't it? Jesus, in fact, told us through this parable here that prior to his coming, that there will be a judgment and the judgment is ratified, if you like, at the time of Christ's second coming, when there is a separation um, uh, between the sheep and the goats and the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air and the wicked are destroyed. Now, if this is the case, we still have to answer the question, how is it what sort of a judgment could the righteous possibly participate in? What is that? God's already made the decision. Surely nobody's going to challenge God on the decisions that he's made because the Bible says that God's holy. God's perfect. He never makes mistakes. The Bible says that God's the same yesterday, today and forever. In other words, the decisions that God's made in the past here regarding who's going to be lost and who's going to be saved, is he going to reverse his decision during the thousand years? Well, let's just find out. What does the Bible have to say on this subject? And the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3. He says, Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? What is Paul saying here? He's saying that do you not know that the saints... What are saints? Just God's people. That's all it is. We've spoken about this earlier. Don't you know that the saints shall judge the world? Wait a minute. I thought God was going to judge the world. He is. I thought there was a judgment before the second coming of Christ. There is. But somehow the righteous also participate in the judgment. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we shall judge what? What does it say there? We shall judge angels. How much more things that pertain to this life? The Apostle Paul says that the, the time will come after the second coming of Christ, that the righteous will judge the world, that the righteous will judge angels. And we have to ask ourselves, how is that possible? Uh, God's people, will God's people have the temerity to challenge God's, God's um, decisions that he has made? Because prior to the second coming of Christ, Jesus has already made, and God and the Holy Spirit and the, the rest of the unfallen worlds have made a decision who's to be lost and who's to be saved. 
So what part could the righteous possibly have? Is there a chance that perhaps God could reverse a decision? Is that possible? That can't be the case because the Bible says that God's the same yesterday, today and forever. So there's no chance of that. So in what way do God's people contribute or participate in the judgment? Imagine this. Imagine after the second coming of Christ, the righteous are gathered up to meet the Lord in the air. They've been taken back to the Father's house, the New Jerusalem. And then in a quest to find people that you've known and respected for many, many years while on earth, you remember that lady, that lady who used to do meals on wheels. She was so friendly, so outgoing. Aunt May, you know, we used to call her in church, Aunt May. And she was so busy and she was full of life, always friendly, always happy. But when you go in search of Aunt May, she's not there. She's not there at all. And, uh, and then you, you ask, why isn't she there? And then the recording angel, possibly her own guardian angel, will show you the record of Aunt May's life and you'll be able to see very clearly that God did everything possible for Aunt May to be in the kingdom. But there were things, there were attitudes in her lives, there was a disposition in her life that caused her, if you like, to miss out on the saving grace of God and she was a judged unworthy of eternal life. Remember the Bible tells us that God is merciful so for people to not be in the kingdom and after God has done everything possible for the person to be saved there must be some glaring character weakness there must be something happening in their life that a person will sense so certainly not that person cannot be in the kingdom but the reality is that during the period of the thousand years God's people are going to have their minds settled regarding what's happening in the judgment but uh, what happened in the judgment and why certain people are not there however let's go back let's think about the judgment because the bible talks about there being books in heaven the bible says that there are books there are three different types of books now when we think about this judgment in heaven certainly the main reason is to remove any doubts about god's mercy and goodness even towards the lost that's got to be the prime reason so that people would understand that God has done everything possible for those persons to be saved but it's also for those persons themselves so that they realize that God has done everything possible that he's not vindictive that he's not capricious that he's not self-serving nothing like that that God has endeavored to save those people but imagine this imagine if you went to God and you said God you know where's such and such and God says you just mind your business we've made the decision or I've made the decision you'll just be thankful that you got there now that wouldn't be very satisfactory at all would it and in 10,000 years or in a billion billion years you know you could rightly say God you were wrong about Aunt May no that's never going to happen because the Bible says that God gives people opportunities to review the decisions that God has made prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ now in relation to the records of people's lives as I said there are three books or three groups of books the Bible identifies in Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 we learn that there is a book of life 
and in Revelation and a number of other passages in the Bible as well. But it tells us that there's a book of life in which the names of the righteous are recorded. And in Revelation 3 verse 5, it actually warns us that a person's name can be removed from the book of life despite, despite the protestations of uh, certain uh, denominations, certain religious groups or Christian groups who say that once you accept Jesus Christ, you're always saved, that everything's okay. You know, their doctrine called once saved, always saved. And um, certainly that's not the case. The Bible doesn't teach that in any way, shape or form. So there's a book of life that has the names of the righteous. And then we have the books, plural, books, plural, the books of the dead. Now, these are found in Revelation chapter 20, and these actually have the names and the deeds of the lost. Now, we're going to be looking at more detail at that next week, but simply to say this, that that book contains the deeds, the works of the wicked. And it's these books that the righteous go through during the thousand years to adjudge God that he's done everything possible for the salvation of that person. And thirdly, there's another book. And the book is called the Book of Remembrance, in which it records the testimonies of God's people here upon the earth, when they've spoken to one another about God, or even when they have thought about God. Imagine that. God records even when your thoughts are thinking about him in a, in a positive way. But we read this in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. It says this, Then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. What does it say there? It says that when God's people speak of the Lord, the Lord hears it and he hearkens. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. The word fear there, by the way, It says, then they that feared the Lord. The word fear there, it doesn't mean fear and trembling because the Bible makes it very clear that God is the God that we should run to, not run away from. The word fear there, it just comes from the Old English and all it simply means is reverence. It's the Old English word for revere. That's what it's referring to there. So God has a book. It's called the Book of Remembrance for those who revere God, who hold God in the highest possible esteem. And not only does he record their words when they're sharing with one another, but he also records their thoughts when they're thinking of him. But let's move on now, because the Bible tells us that the righteous participate in a judgment during the thousand years. That, in effect, vindicates the decisions that God has already made. But is that all the righteous are going to do in the New Jerusalem, in the city of God? Are they just going to simply go over the records, ask questions about who's not there and why they're not there? No, I seriously doubt that. In the Bible, we read, and Book of Revelation particularly, we read about the New Jerusalem. And in Revelation chapter 21, it gives us the dimensions of the New Jerusalem. And there's no reason why I would believe they're anything else but accurate. In fact, it tells us that the New Jerusalem is huge. If we were to place the New Jerusalem upon Australia or upon Victoria, this is the size of the New Jerusalem. Can you see it? When we look at the measurements, the Bible talks about it in terms of furlongs and the like, but in our language, 
where we would talk about the New Jerusalem having a circumference of 1,500 miles or 22, 2,300 kilometers. And it's huge. Around every corner would be a wonder to behold. When you think about Melbourne here, we think about this beautiful city of Melbourne and many of you I know who are here um, live in Melbourne proper itself and what a place and what a blessing it is to live in Melbourne. But it doesn't matter how long you live here, you can live in Melbourne your entire life but you're never going to see everything that Melbourne has to offer, all the marvellous little eateries, all the alleyways and the laneways, the theatres, the parks, the gardens, just the beautiful coastal areas. You're not going to see everything that Melbourne has has to offer it's an impossibility but what about the city of God what about the new Jerusalem is there a possibility that you will see everything in a short time uh, in relation to the city of God it's an absolute impossibility the Bible tells us that the new Jerusalem is laid out in a square and there are gates in the outer walls of the city which are open all the times so we're in the new Jerusalem we have these wonders wonders to behold you imagine we see some beautiful architecture in our land and our country today but imagine God as the architect God as a designer, God as a builder, how wonderful everything's going to be. And around every corner, there would be another wonder to behold. And uh, the thing is that the Apostle Paul was struck with this same thought about the wonder wonder and the, the, the magnitude of God and his creative abilities. And his mind focuses on the life to come. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, He says, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those that what? For those who love him. The Apostle Paul says that men and women cannot imagine how wonderful the life to come is going going to be. One thing we do know about the life to come, there's going to be no abuse, There's going to be no jealousy. There's going to be no fear. There's going to be no death. There's going to be no suffering. There's going to be none of those things that have cursed this earth at all. And when you consider that, what a wonderful place it's going to be. So it's certainly a lot to look forward to, apart from the fact of spending time with our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ and the the unfallen beings that have never known, never experienced sin at all. Now, let's pause for a moment. Let's consider what we have learnt thus far. So we know that the millennium, the 1,000 years, commences with the second coming of Jesus Christ. We've already learnt that the righteous are gathered up at the time of Christ's second coming. The Bible calls it the resurrection of life. We know that the righteous of Christ's second coming are changed. They're translated. They're no longer subject to death. They no longer have the natural appeal to sin. They no longer have bodies that break down. They're made immortal. They're made incorruptible. And we also have learnt that the wicked living are slain during the 1,000 years. Now, let's move on to the condition of the earth during the 1,000 years. Now, as I've said, there are people who say that this will be a parting paradise. They believe that the earth during the 1,000 years is going to be such a wonderful, beautiful place. Jesus is going to be here with them, but the Bible says something altogether different. The Bible actually tells us that the earth is going to be a desolate place 
waste during the 1,000 years. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah, after the second coming of Jesus Christ, in vision, he sees the earth after the second coming. He says this, And at that time, the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of heaven even unto the other. Does that sound like paradise to you? It's certainly not a place where I'd want to be. It's certainly not, nothing like that at all. So the Bible says that in vision, Jeremiah sees this world after the second coming of Christ and he says the slain of the Lord from one end of the earth even to the other. So they cover the earth. So the earth is in ruin. There's dead bodies littered er everywhere after the second coming of Christ. But let's read on now. We're looking at Jeremiah now, chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 23. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void, and the heavens they had, how much? No light. What does this remind you of? This sounds like the words that we read in the book of Genesis, isn't it? In the beginning, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was uh, without form and void. This sort of language, it sounds like Genesis. It sounds like the creation account. Um, and the Bible says that darkness was across the face of the deep. However, that's not what the Bible's talking about here. Because Jeremiah says this, I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled and I beheld and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger it sounds like the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 when the Bible says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but it's not because here we read that it talks about mountains. It talks about fruitful places which are broken down. It talks about cities which are broken down. So it cannot be talking about uh, the creation account. But here Jeremiah is given a remarkable insight to the condition of this world after the second coming of Christ and it is a des desolate waste. So the earth is shrouded in darkness. There is no man or woman there. The mountains are trembling, the orchards, the vineyards, the fruitful places are broken down. The cities are a ruin. But why is the earth in such a shocking condition after the second coming of Christ? Well, the simple answer is this, that there were judgments and plagues which were to warn men and women that the ending was coming but they all preceded the second coming of Christ in fact in the Bible we read in Revelation chapter 8 and chapter 9 about these jump uh, about seven trumpet blasts and these are preliminary penultimate warnings that the ending is coming that the world is coming to its closure and men and women need to respond to the gospel appeal but also after those judgments have come to alert, to waken men and women up that the end is coming, you have the seven last plagues which completely destroy the earth. And what I want to do now is I want to read to you just one of the plagues. It's just one of the plagues, not all of them, because uh, we don't have time this evening, but we're going to look at one plague. And this is what it says in Revelation chapter 16. This is the seventh plague. This is the last plague. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying it is done 
and there were voices and thunders and lightnings and there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great so it talks about here of an earthquake which is so great that it's never been experienced ever anything like it on planet earth before and then it says and every mile island fled away and the mountains were not found no wonder because of this earthquake mountain chains fall beneath uh, uh, fall beneath they become valleys if you like islands sink beneath the sea this is what Jeremiah is actually seeing in vision he sees the trembling of the mountains the trembling of the islands these are all the aftershocks of this catastrophic earthquake which has struck the earth under the seventh last plague and then it says and every island fled away and the mountains were not found and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven every stone about the weight of a talent it says here that there is a mighty hailstorm a great hailstorm and every one of those hailstones was at least the weight of a what what does it say on the screen there the weight of a talent a talent is what we would identify with in the old imperial measurement of around 70 to 75 pounds. Uh, in the metric, we would talk in terms of 32, 33, 34 kilos, something like that. But imagine a hailstorm when every stone is the weight of a, of a talent, 32 or 35 kilos, something like that. Imagine the damage that they would do. Then the Bible says, and men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceedingly great. The Bible says that there's an earthquake so powerful that it devastates the world. And you could imagine that sort of an earthquake would cause tsunamis and the buildings would and coastal cities would be destroyed and it would go far inland. And vision, John sees or Jeremiah sees the mountains trembling. These are all the results of this aftershock. But he also talks about a plague of hail. And in this plague of hail, they weigh the weight of a talent or 32 kilos. We all know the damage that a hailstorm does. But can you imagine the damage that stones that weigh 32 kilos are going to do? Cities like Melbourne are going to become a ruin. Cities like New York and Edinburgh and London will become an absolute ruin. The fruitful places are all destroyed. That's why John envisioned and that's why Jeremiah envisioned he sees this world and it's dark and it's desolate. It's a ruined place destitute of life because Jeremiah is looking at the time after the seven last pl- after the seven plagues after the second coming of Jesus Christ the earth is shrouded in darkness the bible tells us that the moon doesn't give its light the bible's already told us that the stars are fall from heaven in fact we read this in revelation chapter 6 verse 14 talking about events which precede the second coming of Christ it says then the sky receded it is a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island was moved out of its place and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men the commanders the mighty men and every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to what what's the last word there who is able to stand 
In this verse, John, in vision, sees the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, And there's nothing in this verse to suggest that when Jesus Christ comes back, it's secretive. There's nothing at all. Nobody could say that when Jesus comes back, after reading that verse, that it's a secret event. It's just impossible. It's counterintuitive. But the reality is that dramatic are the signs which accompany the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us the sky recedes as a scroll. The sun doesn't give its light. The moon becomes like blood or black. The Bible Bible says the stars fall from heaven. The point that I'm making in reading this verse here is when the sky recedes as a scroll, it's telling us that our atmosphere, that thin veneer, that thin layer which surrounds planet Earth is torn back. And all of a sudden, this world becomes unsuitable to sustain human life. There's no sunlight, there's no moonlight, and even the atmosphere has disappeared at the time of Christ's second coming. Now, With all this talk of destruction, with all this talk of cataclysmic judgments and plagues falling upon the earth, each of which has a supernatural origin, I don't want you to feel gloomy. I don't want you to feel worried because God's protective hand, he has promised, will be upon those people who are faithful to him. You can have no doubt at all about that. God will take care of his own. No question at all. But the Bible does warn us that this world is not going to continue on infinitum. The Bible tells us this world will have an end. But it's not just going to whimper out. It's going to end with a bang, so to speak. And people will be able to make clear decisions about whether their decision is to follow God or to ignore God. When we look at this, the, this study tonight, we've seen that the earth is in a desolate condition during the 1,000 years. It cannot support life at all. And the belief that at the second coming of Christ, the righteous are transformed and the belief that Jesus Christ comes back to this world is to have a transformational effect on our lives. Certainly, there are problems coming back, but the Bible calls the belief in the second coming the blessed hope. And we, with eager anticipation, should long for the second coming of Christ, which will bring in the end of sin, the end of child abuse, the end of women bashing, the end of wars, the the end of uh, uh, murders, the end of burglaries. All these things are going to finish when Jesus Christ returns. And so the Bible calls the second coming of Christ the blessed hope. And men and women should long for the return of Jesus Christ because God has promised that when he comes, the righteous will be rewarded with immortality and incorruptibly. Now, where do we get all this information from tonight? We got it from the Bible. We got it all from the Bible. We've allowed the Bible to interpret itself. That's what we've done. But we've also seen in these presentations that the truth has nothing to fear from investigation. So we've finished part one tonight. And we've done very well. We've covered a lot of ground and we've made a lot of advances in the truth. And things are clearer now. But what I want to do very quickly is I want to review what we've learned tonight. We've learned that the resurrection of life commences at the second coming of Christ. 
Uh, we know that the second coming of Christ is the event which marks the beginning of the thousand years. We also know that the resurrection of the righteous is accompanied with their translation, meaning they're made immortal and incorruptible. And we know that the wicked are slain at the time of Christ's second coming. We also know, and we've learned tonight, that the earth is desolate during these 1,000 years. But next week, we're going to be learning more. And you'll be delighted because we're only halfway through the story now. That's where we are in this study of the 1,000 years. You'll be delighted the way that it finishes because it's good news, happy news, wonderful news for those who want to respond to God and accept the invitation of grace. Now, next week, our presentation is called The Day the Fire Goes Out. The Day the Fire Goes Out. Remember to collect uh, everything. Uh, you've got study guide. You've got a handout there. Um, uh, with additional information pertaining to this subject. Make sure you receive those from the greeters, uh, from the ushers as you go out. For those people who are watching at home, uh, if you go to the web address that's on your screen now, you can get all the information from this series. Wherever you live in the world, we'll send them out to you free of charge and we'll do that in a very prompt fashion as well. Why don't we finish in prayer now? We'll ask for God's blessing as we go back to our homes. For you, those of you who are going to hotels or motels, I'll ask a blessing upon you as well. All right. Father in heaven, we want to thank you that you've been with us uh, tonight in this big presentation on the 1,000 years. I just ask that you be with each one of us as we go back to our place of uh, sweet repose, that we'll be able to rest, that we'll be strengthened, and that we'll be, gathered, be able to gather here again next, uh, next week in order to continue the uh, study of your word. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. This message was made available by the Orchard Melbourne Central City Church. For more resources like this, visit theorchardmelbourne.org.au. You've been listening to Go Teach All Nations here on 3ABN Australia Radio. I am with you. Over and over again in Scripture, God goes to extraordinary lengths to assure us that He is with us. Zephaniah tells us in chapter 3, verse 17, that the Lord your God in your midst, the Mighty One, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And speaking of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in Him. And of course, in the Great Commission, Jesus Himself promises us that as we teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Today, try setting an alarm on your phone or place a note in your home as a simple reminder that God is with you and delights in you. And remember, 
When you see the reminder or you hear the alarm, pause for a few moments and say to him something like, thank you. Thank you for taking delight in me. Even though sometimes I have a difficult time accepting that, help me to remember that throughout this day that you are by my side in each and every moment. So today, be intentional and create a reminder. And remember, live your faith. Have a blessed day. It's been a pleasure bringing you this program here on 3ABN Australia Radio.